This. This is, this is diversified, diversified, diversified game, game, game. game. A podcast giving entrepreneurial advice from a diverse and inclusive perspective with Kelly. He may agree, he may oppose, and it's more than just race, it's about, you know, ideas. So, let the game begin. Hey, it's Kellen. And you guys, you're in for a treat on this dark day. I'm still poolside, but it's nighttime. So this is going to be always a great interview. I have known Gnome Drami, Managing Director of Reboot Studios. And this, I don't want you to tune out thinking it's just going to be, oh, here we go. We're going to be talking about religion, talk about cultural. No, we're going to get into the game. How he, one, survives in California, my home state, during these COVID times. And what brought him to the state of California to make him stay 30 years. I know it's a woman, so I can't wait for him to tap in to say how, you know, his wife has impacted him. Welcome to the show. How are you doing, brother? Hey, Kellen. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Man, tell me, tell me, I got to know, because I I started off like that because we were having a conversation, you know, in the inbox. Which woman, what is her, you know, impact in your life? I usually try to end here, but I got to start here. That has kept you in California this long. So California, (laughs) Um, I, uh, I mean, so when we came here, I was still a kid. I was, I was pretty young. But um, what has kept me here? My wife has kept me here. Um, She and I have been together thirteen years now. We met on the Writers Guild strike line in two thousand seven during the big strike that was all about um, helping writers supposedly get more rights in new media. And then, of course, the studios were all talking, oh, well, this is an experiment. We don't know what's going to happen because Netflix hadn't blown up. There was no Hulu. There was no Amazon Prime. Um, And then, of course, now that's all there is in a way. But my wife um, was out there on the picket line. I like to say we gave new meaning to meeting online. And uh, 13 years later, we're somehow still making it work. Uh, She's a location manager in film and TV. So that keeps her busy and traveling but our base of operations is los angeles for now and we'll see what happens all right no i love to hear that and i also love to tell people you know i saw you and you were speaking on a stage at clubhouse shout out to clubhouse for just being able to have us all connect yeah and so you know when you were talking about radio and you were there you were talking about you know don't just focus on the top 10 look at state radio and you know city radio i'll give your background of you know the different things you've been able to do so i'm actually going to take it even further back you know it's funny my my father uh, passed away over 20 years ago now but he was born in uh mandate palestine so even before there was a state of israel he um, was born there in the 1930s so before world war ii and everything else Um, And uh, very much a renaissance man. He went to uh, Switzerland to study in medical school, um, dropped out the last year before he was done, came back to his home country and uh, became a concert pianist for a number of years. And then Israel's uh, state radio station had three different channels. There was a news channel, a popular music channel. So, you know, top 40 of, of the time and then a classical music channel. And my father became the managing director of the classical music division of Israel Radio. And then he hosted 
two really popular shows like teaching young people how to fall in love with classical music. So I, I share that context by way of saying, I feel like that's always been in my DNA in a way, you know, he was a journalist. I did that for a while. He did the radio thing. You know, I've been in the podcast game and whatever for a long time. He came to the States with my mom in the sixties for a minute to get his master's degree in television uh, writing from UCLA and, uh, you know, and I've been doing, I've been in the movie business, movie and TV business since I was 15 years old. So um, we came out here, I, in my fr- uh, sophomore year of high school, um, my father said to me one day, I got to go interview this dude who's a director of a, of a film, an Israeli director making his first American movie. Um, and he said, I'm going to take you with me. And I didn't want to go. I was a science nerd. I wasn't really down with that. But he took me to the set. And Kellen, let me tell you, it was like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to imagine like the, the greatest hit of a drug ever, where once you take it, you know, you're hooked for life. Um, so that winter, I was interning on that movie. And then when it was time to go back to school in January, February, um, I didn't I was like, shit, I, I don't need school. I know what I want to do. And my parents were not trying to hear that. So I wasn't driving yet. They took me to the school bus one morning. Um, and then when they drove away, I ran across the street. I took the city bus, 45 minute bus ride. I showed up on this set. And the producers were there and they're like, what are you doing here? You know, aren't you supposed to be in school? And I was like, oh, didn't you guys get the facts? Um, they approved this as a work study program for me. So for 11 days, I would show up every day. I faked a note so that the people at the school thought my family had to go back to Israel because my grandmother had died. So I faked a note. Our next door neighbor, I, I paid him off to go to our mailbox and just make sure that if any mail came from the school, he would snatch it before my parents saw it. On day 12, I came home. My mom was there and my mom was never... Um, you know, it was always at work. I walk in the door. She goes, how's it going? It's good. How was school today? And I wasn't in school. I said, oh, school was good. Oh, what did you learn? And the first thing that came to mind, because it was like January, almost February, was President's Day. And she said, and, and I said, well, so we learned about the presidents. Oh, what did you learn about the president? She says, I didn't, you know, I'm a horrible liar. So I was trying to, you know, BS and whatnot. And she said, Oh, let me tell you something I learned about the presidents. And I was like, oh, what's that? And she goes, let me tell you the story about George Washington, who could not tell a lie. And she pulled out a stack of mail, slapped it on the ground. She goes, do you want to tell me what the fuck is going on? So I had to come clean. I got grounded. My, she appreciated the hustle, but certainly not the dishonesty. And I said, look, this is what I want to do. She said, cool, go to summer school, take extra credit, figure it out. So by 12th grade, I had earned every single credit I need to except for three. So I would go to school in the morning from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. And that was it for high school. And then I worked on the lot at 20th Century Fox as an assistant and just worked my way up. I somehow managed to graduate high school with honors. I went to USC. Um, then I didn't end up finishing there. But then I started uh, working as an assistant on uh, Jerry Bruckheimer's first scripted TV show. And I did that for nine, 10 months. And then there was an opportunity. 
there were four open slots to submit so you could um, uh, be able to write a script for the show. And I ended up doing that. And through luck and, you know, a lot of support from people, they ended up buying my episode. Um, and then this show, which was sort of about mercenaries, like black ops uh, soldiers, um, they, they were going into a second season and I was going to become a full-time writer on the show. And they thought to themselves, well, how do we make a show about like the, a legit version of the A-Team even better? And what did they decide to do, Kellen? They cast Dennis Rodman as the new lead. <laughs> and the show got canceled six months later. So I, uh, so I uh, started working with the producers. I became their head of development. Um, we sold a couple shows to a couple different networks. And then this bright, shiny toy called the internet was starting to blow up in the late 90s. So I created a website teaching people how to go and pitch their TV shows ideas to studios. And that was called tvpitch.com. And that blew up. We offered all that information for free. And then we would charge people a script consultation service. And it was like $80 for a half hour script and $140 for an hour script. Um, and I thought, you know, there was no social media, no Facebook, no MySpace, no Twitter, no IG, no anything. But, you know, I, I had some tricks up my sleeve. So I started like uh, spamming all of the universities where there were film programs. And Kellen, we got 4,000 script submissions. So you do the math on that. That was a nice little payday. But we had to figure out how to actually get all, all the scripts read. But once that was done, I thought to myself, if the people who want to break into the business are willing to pay for access to the people who are in the business in TV, was that true in music? Is that true in cooking? Is that true in the dance and in all these other areas? So I put together a business plan for a company called mycreativity.com. We went out and raised an angel round and then a series A round. And we got some big people on board. Jerry Bruckheimer had come on board. Wolfgang Puck had come on board. All these other people. So it was like masterclass 20 years before there was masterclass. And then the stock market, August of 2000, fell off a cliff and it was game over. So then I decided I was going to hustle and be a writer. I could go on and on, but that yeah. that's my origin story. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I go old school Larry King style and let you tell that story without having to feel like I have to one up it um, as current you know, media is. I, I love that you talk about coming up the hard way. I mean, you didn't you weren't part of the Harvard Lampoon. Do you think that that way now is still uh, are you is it possible because people give the right arm to get into this entertainment? and then really want it back in, you know, five years or five months. So do you think that still is like the formula of just hard work? I'm going to answer that in two ways. So yes, I do. But, you know, for me, it was just a question of that one little door slightly opening, you know, and again, it's not, my father didn't know any of these people. He, I literally went on this set and then I, and then I was like, this is what I'm going to do. So I'm going to hustle and do it perseverance and tenacity do still pay off. And look, the reality of it is still remains. There's been a real consolidation in the business. There, are, there aren't the same number of independent production companies. It feels like everything is a Netflix joint. Everything is a Hulu or HBO joint or whatever it's going to be. But the truth of the matter is, yeah, the opportunities are still out there. What I tell people always when I'm 
you know, because I'm also a college professor. I teach at the film program at Loyola Marymount University. But what I always tell my students is every opportunity, work on an industrial, work on a student film, just work on those skills. And then also, look, the truth of the matter is nowadays, the tools that people have to create content you know, the YouTube generation and everything else, those are available to everyone. Everyone could learn how to edit on Adobe. Everyone can, you know, learn how to use a black magic to shoot 4K and do whatever you need to do. There is no excuse for not getting out there to create. Because if you're waiting for permission, if you're waiting for somebody to say, oh, it's now your time now, shoot your shot, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Now your career may not look the way you think that it'll look originally, but there's opportunities in virtual reality and video games in apps and all of these new technologies and people are paying attention. You know, I think um, I was in a clubhouse room recently and we were talking about just these non-traditional ways that people come up. If you make some dope piece of content in TikTok or Snapchat or whatever, you got folks who are paying attention because they are drawing big eyeballs. And I think that the, where there's a will, there's a way. No, I definitely, I love to hear that because my real job, I'm a consultant and a lot of those folks are YouTubers and I have, you know, certain that are like full, full time. And that's what they did. Started in their bathroom and have made, you know, millions plus of subscribers. So you guys can keep on pushing now, I, I have to say, you're quite modest in telling that story because you don't talk about the Emmy. If I had an Emmy, I might wear it around my neck like a chain, like I was a rapper. So can you talk about, is there any Emmy jinx or, you know, do you even care about the awards at all? So great question. So let me actually just continue on the chronology of um, what you know, so we tried to start that digital company about 20 years ago. And then obviously the stock market and other circumstances kind of brought that to a standstill. But we had an amazing group of advisors. And among them was the gentleman uh, who had just left his tenure as the chairman and CEO of Sony Pictures um, and started a company called Mandalay Entertainment. His name was Peter Guber. Now today, Peter is known as a co-owner of the Dodgers, co-owner of the Golden State Warriors, co-owner of Team Liquid, which is the number two esports league in the in the country and on the planet, I think. Um, and then just launched uh, LAFC, which is the new um, soccer slash football club that will be in Los Angeles as well. I was 22 at the time, 23 at the time. Um, and I became at first a consultant and then head of digital media for his company. And I held that position for five years. So I was a VP at 23. Um, and then, you know, by the end of my tenure, I was managing a $3 million PL, not only doing all the interactive stuff for all the different divisions of the company. So the movie division, the TV division, the sports division, the live events division, but we also took what we did kind of uh, a term you may have heard of before called branded entertainment. And we would work with other brands and kind of bring our Hollywood pixie dust to them. So the reason that wound down was because another company was going to buy Mandalay and I was going to move to Atlanta and go work for that company. But I think, you know, for a variety of reasons, that transaction never ended up happening. So I was sort of at an interesting crossroads. Because I went and I sat down with Peter, who was a mentor to me. 
And, you know, he was not really focused on interactive in the same way. And I said, look, you know, I started in TV. I kind of want to get back to that. He's like, look, I'll hook you up with our TV people, but you got to understand you're going to be starting at the like entry level again. And that may not be what you want to do. So we parted ways and he's remained a good friend and mentor, you know, over all these years. Um, and then I went and ended up working for a creative agency uh, as a producer. Um, and then that led to another creative agency. Um, and then I saw a unique opportunity in the marketplace. People love TV. DVD box sets were really hot, but nobody yet was really focused on the idea of taking old shows and putting them on DVD. So I went to a buddy of mine who had some of um, these relationships and we ended up licensing the rights to Xena Warrior Princess, Hercules, The Legendary Journeys, Highlander, Agrippa, other shows. Um, and we had some real success there. We put out a bunch of box sets. Then I went back to Peter Goober, who by this point had a talk show on AMC channel called uh, Sunday Morning Shootout. And I licensed that show from him. And I created a box set called Film School in a Box, powered by Sunday Morning Shootout. And it took like the best of the interviews he did with, you know, uh, Denzel and the head of Revolution Studios and, you know, literally thousands of guests. And we put that out. We did an exclusive with Best Buy. We sold about 30,000 units of that. And it was dope. Like we, we were you know, really sort of taking it to the next level. And, and not only were we creating good bonus content, but we would do the menus, we would do the packaging, we would do the merchandising. And I remember knowing that like, feeling like we had hit the big leagues when we got invited by, by Disney, their home entertainment division that was called Buena Vista Home Entertainment. And they said, look, what you guys do is really dope. We want to uh, present you with some of the shows that we are interested in licensing and see if you're interested in any of them. And they threw out a couple that were my favorites, one of which was Moonlighting, which was Bruce Willis's first TV show. And we we're like, yeah, we'd be interested in this. And here came the kicker. They said, cool, in order for you guys to move to the next level, we just need you to write us a check for an advance against future royalties for Kellen, $2.2 million. I turned to my partner. I said, yeah, we, we are, we're not in this fucking business anymore because they're on drugs if they think that, that this title is going to be worth that. Because at this point, the market was so oversaturated and they were overvaluing their library. Um, so that was a real consideration. But I realized that we had a great infrastructure. We had editing equipment, camera equipment, really smart people. So my partner and I said, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And what that meant was that we would become a vendor for all the studios who we had previously licensed content from. So now instead of being responsible for the sale and distribution of it, we would just make good content our revenue increased threefold at that point because we had so much more work because we didn't have to deal with the pressure of, you know, actually paying the advance for the license and do all that. Um, and then about a year into that, uh, our company got acquired by a bigger agency that was based here in Burbank, California. Um, and then 
I signed a contract so I would stay on and, you know, help continue to build the business there, but then also help them with their TV to DVD division and their interactive division, et cetera, et cetera. Um, about a year into that, the guy who I was reporting to, he said, you know, I like you, you're, you're a hustler, you're a hard worker. I consult, I have a side hustle with a, with a production group that is based at Warner Brothers. And um, I think they could use someone with interactive expertise. You should come in and meet them. So I came in and I met two gentlemen by the name of Andrew Kosov and Broderick Johnson. They ran a company called Alcon Entertainment that they had founded out of their dorm room at Princeton. Uh, one black dude, one white dude. Um, and then they got the head of FedEx to fund their company. And this was about six years into their company. So I came on as kind of a consultant and a strategist for interactive. And we were working on sisterhood of the traveling pants part two. And we had just wrapped up a meeting. And as everyone was leaving, I went to the two heads of the company. I said, guys, I know this is, you know, I know I'm the marketing dude, but can I uh, pitch you guys a movie idea? And Kellen, they both rolled their eyes. They're like, you know, basically like just stay in your lane. But I was like, just hear me out. Give me three minutes. And I told them that that morning before I came into the meeting, I was watching the Today Show and I saw a story about a dolphin that had been injured in a crab trap off the coast of Florida in the Indian River. Um, and by the time it was rescued, it um, uh, it had a wire wrapped around its dor dorsal fin and the, um, the fin had lost its blood supply, so it had to be amputated. And a team of scientists came together and they figured out how to create a prosthetic tail for the dolphin. By the time I'm done, they're like, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's it. You know, we love this idea. You'll produce it with us. And I, and I stopped them and I said, well, I would like to write it. And they kind of again looked at me like, do you even know how to write scripts? So I said, yes, and I gave them some samples. And thus began the journey of me writing, being the first writer on a, a couple other people worked on it as well, uh, a movie that, uh, that uh, Warner Brothers released in 2011 called Dolphin Tale. And it starred Morgan Freeman, Ashley Judd, Harry Connick Jr. Um, it did 100 million at the worldwide box office. And then the sequel came out in 2014, Dolphin Tale 2. Um, and that to me was, you, you know, I was like, shit, I'm in, I'm, I'm writing movies, but you know, it was, it's hard. It's still, even though I had that success, it was still hard. So I started writing and producing documentaries and I had some success there. And then in about 2010, 11, I started working with the actor comedian Orlando Jones. Uh, you know him from make seven up yours and he's on American gods. He was on mad TV, uh, you know, just a ton of stuff. And so, and I became the president of his production company. Um, and, uh, we did a ton of different projects in the digital space. We created a digital series called tainted love that was voted by variety magazine as one of the top five digital series of 2013 and got a lot of love there. And then he got cast on uh, a show on Fox called Sleepy Hollow. And he was one of the heads, uh, one of the main stars on that for two years. 
And during that time, I got hired to be kind of a digital consultant for Fox Studios and for the show. And I went into the executives and I said, hey, I want to pitch you guys on, a, a, on an idea, which is I want to do a standalone episode of the show in VR. Now, this was at the beginning of Oculus. No one knew the full promise of virtual reality, but I explained it to them. I had a team in place that was going to do it, and they gave us the green light. And that kind of blew up. We premiered it at Comic-Con that following July, and my team and I received the first primetime Emmy for original programming in virtual reality in 2015. Um, and... That was dope. We got a lot of love. We obviously broke some real ground there. Then when Orlando was done on Sleepy Hollow, one of the executives from the production company that made the show, who was a friend of mine and a former uh, Disney Studios executive, he, Orlando, and I started a company called Legion of Creatives. Right out the gate, we had a first look deal at ABC. We got hired by the gaming company Ubisoft, to create a live action version of Ghost Recon that premiered on Twitch in 2017. And then we got hired by AMC Studios to produce a digital series spinoff for The Walking Dead. And we got nominated for um, a uh, Emmy for that in 2018. Then the company wound down, you know, at that point, Orlando was on American Gods. So he had moved um, to the East Coast and, was working in Canada and I just took some time, you know, taking care of some family stuff. And then I had the opportunity to join this nonprofit that was just making really dope creative content called reboot. And here I am. That's, that's a, 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 a mouthful, a handful. I hope you guys got the game that it wasn't just, it happened. It happened because of the hard work. Now, my question that can help a lot of folks who are trying to get there and some folks who say, hey, look, I made my first hundred thousand, you know, this quarter. When you're dealing with all these big money projects, especially after you win an Emmy, how do you deal with the friends and family that come and say, hey, I know you're rich now. Got a great idea. Or let me pitch this. Or, I need a loan for this great business. It's kind of like the internet, but it's internet mixed crypto. Like, how do you deal with that? Because everyone could assume that know you, that you're rich, you've made it, you're set for life. Help me out. A great question. So first and foremost, the most beautiful word, the most beautiful word in the English language is no. And the fact of the matter remains that um, I will always, every good thing that has happened to me in my life has happened because people believed in me when on paper, I didn't necessarily have the goods. People were willing to give me a shot because they saw the fire. They saw the hustle. They, they knew that uh, I was going to give 210%. Um, when I come across people who want something I always have to look at how, what their hustle is, what their work ethic is and how they're backing it up. Um, and it's funny how, when you, when someone says to you, I have a great idea, but then you start asking a lot of questions and really hold their feet to the fire. So they're accountable. All of a sudden they don't always have it figured out in a way. Um, but at the same time, I've invested in some things that I really had a good instinct about. Some of them worked. A lot of them didn't work. And I'm willing to take those risks 
if I can believe that the person who's coming to me with the opportunity, the person who's coming to me with the ask, I know that they're going to make it happen whether or not I help them. Like there are some people where you just see, you know, they'll take your no and they'll work that much harder to, to make you regret having said no in a way. But look, Kellen, this is true whether in the Jewish culture and the black culture and anything else. A lot of people are going to come out of the woodwork. The people who would not give you the time of day when you weren't quote unquote successful, they're going to come out of the woodwork when you are and be like, oh, you're my best friend. You're my buddy, buddy. You just got to remember with the same humility. If you stay the same person who you were before, you're going to see who was coming up with you when you were nobody and had your back versus people who are just showing up out of the woodwork. So look, I'm always happy to listen. Most importantly, I'll be honest with you, less people come to me for money than they do for advice or for a connect to, um, you know, to, can you get me into this room? Can you introduce me to this person? I kind of think about it the same way that, you know, this app that you and I first met on clubhouse, if you go to your profile, it says you were nominated by this person. So part of the reason I'm trying, I'm making sure that I don't act a fool on clubhouse is because I don't want to embarrass the person who invited me to be a part of that, who nominated me to be a part of that platform in the first place. And that's how I approach it. If somebody wants a connection from me to someone else, I got to think about it. If they fuck up, that's going to reflect poorly on me. And I'm not about that. I've worked too hard to have my reputation messed up because I didn't do my due diligence on someone else. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And I thank Rick party for nominating me after I had him on the show. Rick is amazing. Rick is amazing. Yeah, he, he, he is. And you know, a lot of folks, they, when they have those ideas that you're talking about, they don't want to put the work into them, the sleepless nights. It's not like this just came to you and, you know, you're, you're, you're not saying, hey, I was a blue blood and this just happened. And, you know, it, it, it's difficult to get into entertainment, keep your sanity in entertainment. But there's so many jobs. And what I always tell people is you don't know what somebody makes. Somebody could have a big house, Bentley, whatever. They could be so broke, like Robert Kiyosaki says he is. You know, I, I, I don't pay tax, but I owe $800 million. Hey, I don't know if I want those problems because I kind of like being able to move across from America to, to Africa. And I, I, I bring up Africa because, you know, you mentioned your dad being in Palestine before you know, Israel was its official state. What was his thought of, you know, before he passed of what Israel turned into? Did he like the good old days? You know, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, well, I'm going to answer that in two ways. Um, he, he left Israel, you know, to come to the States with my mom, just because I think he saw some of the things politically that he didn't necessarily um, care for. Um, and it's not like he was ever going to come back. He died fairly young, but still. Um, and then in general, look, we're at a really interesting time. I, I don't know if in your social circles you're experiencing it as well, but I think that with the rise of digital media, we are seeing historically marginalized and disenfranchised people have a voice in ways that they never had before, have a platform in ways that they never had before. So what has that done? 
it's created important and necessary discuss discussions about the racial justice conversation, the rights for transgender people, the general um, recognition about abuses that women experience in the workplace, sexual harassment, sexual assault, which gave rise to um, uh, the whole Me Too movement. And regardless of anyone's point of view on, of those things and where they were effective and where they were not, one of the interesting challenges with regard to being a Jewish person is that we are held to account for the actions of the state of Israel, the state of Israel, the Jewish homeland, but they're a government. So I've been in situations where people say, well, Jews need to disavow what Israel is doing in the Palestinian territories. I don't agree with that position. I think that what is what people of conscience need to do is recognize that we all have to be for human justice and social justice, but the people of Israel voted for their government. I'm not a citizen. I am a citizen, but I'm not a resident of the state of Israel. So I don't make that decision. And the reason I'm providing that context is simply to say the following. I think we all have a responsibility as people of conscience to really look about at how the choices we make as consumers, as supporters of organizations and different activities, how we enable oppression, how we enable discrimination. And I think we all have a job to do to really try and do our best to change that. The products you buy, what political organizations are their executives supporting? Um, the, 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 the creative talent you support, what are they doing? Where do they take a stand? I think it's important that we just each be accountable and aware of how the choices we make have consequences. Now, what, what the hell does any of that have to do with my dad? Well, I'll say this much. I think my dad, may he rest in peace, recognized that he was proud to be from Israel. He was an Israeli before there was Israel. You know, he was a Palestinian, but obviously that means something maybe a little different than it means today. Um, and I think my brother, my mother, him, we all knew that the government of Israel did not necessarily represent our values and beliefs. What's happening right now, I, I don't get down with that at all, because they talk about wanting to be supporters of peace and a two-state solution, but their actions do not back that up. I hate, and you and I were saying this before the show started today, the thing I cannot abide by, you can be Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, whatever. I hate hypocrites. And <laughs> everyone in the political class nowadays seem to be hypocrites. Do as I say, not as I do. That's no, what my dad told me. And that's what he believed. I love that. That is a book in itself. I don't know if he ever kept a journal or, you know, just to talk about that. Because after you get through America and the racism and the thisism and that ism, when you go to the homelands and you find the tribalism is like worse because there's things that I, you can't go back. We can only move forward with acknowledging what's happened and trying our best. But again, I don't think politicians, the people we vote for, let's do like I read the book Extreme Ownership. I love that book. The people we vote for 
they're not where we're actually want to be. And I mean, that's the whole why people love Trump, because he's not your typical politician. But I can't wait for Kim Kardashian, your um, neighbor, to start running, you know, after she gets her law degree. And then we'll have Kanye making an album off of it. We're going there. We're going there. It's coming. I, mean, I hear you. There's something yeah. about that that break. I mean, I, I'm, I'm entertained by it, but it also mm. breaks my heart because the dis the, the the really disheartening thing about what has happened in politics over the last 15 20 years and this is born of Sarah Palin and this is born of <laughs> Donald Trump is that we somehow decided that elite was a bad word that education and science and expertise in things was something we could not abide by because certain people felt dumb. They felt looked down upon when people who took time to learn told them, well, this is not actually correct because they want to go with what they feel more so than what is factual. I'm the first to admit there's plenty of things that science doesn't know. There's plenty of things that the political class doesn't know. But when did we decide that being educated was a negative thing? When did we decide that Fame for the sake of fame, celebrity for the sake of celebrity was an aspiration. I don't fuck with that at all. I think that there's great pride. My mom, 81 years old, she has a PhD, you know, because she was taking care of my pops when he got sick before he died. She had to really step back from her career for a number of years. And it was hard for her as a woman to catch up. At 75, she took a trip to Poland she met some folks out there and they said, you're amazing. We want to hire you for this big job we have out here. Half the year now she would spend in the States and half the year in Poland. And she's doing that in her eighties. My dad barely spoke a word of English. He still got a master's degree from UCLA. My brother learning disability got a master's degree and then moved to Australia to get a degree in winemaking. I'm the dumbass who's, got a high school diploma. And fortunately, I've been very blessed with opportunity, but I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner. And the thing I hope, because I think you're sadly right, we're going to see more dynastic thinking with future Trumps running and more celebrities. I just want to get back to people who, who are honest and capable and really trying their best to make life better for people. I won't always agree with them, but I, that is something I hope we get back to. And I think the genie's out of the bottle, sadly. So who knows? Well, now that you said that, Will Smith playing the genie is going to run for office because, nice. you know, it's 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 where where we're at now with all the success that you have had. What is a community give back that you're doing or that you plan on doing for the future? I am involved with a couple of uh, nonprofits and charities that are very near and dear to my heart. So one of them is the Chrysalis Foundation. They're a Los Angeles-based charity, homeless services charity. They're not a shelter or a soup kitchen. They do job training and job placement for people trying to come out of homelessness and people just out of prison. Their motto is a hand up, not a hand out. Um, and I have been on their advisory team and media team. Every year they hold a big fundraiser called the Butterfly Ball, where they honor one of their clients, one of their great success stories of the year. And I, um, I've been producing all the media for that. So if you go on my, uh, you, I'm sure you'll provide links, but you can go on my YouTube 
which is this youtube.com forward slash Noam Dromi. Um, and then you'll see all the links to all those videos. So I'm very involved with that. Um, I also am a part of uh, Boys and Girls Club of America, and I teach a series of master classes for their student population on storytelling and how to break into Hollywood as well. So I'm trying to use my knowledge to help young folks who are trying to break in the business and be a mentor and support really, you know, as much as I can in many different ways. The organization that I work for now, I had mentioned to you before called Reboot, this past year, because they knew how many artists were impacted by the pandemic, my boss, our CEO, he came to me and said, we're going to put together a fund and we want to support, you know, some of these artists, whether they were comics or musicians or actors who couldn't work in order so that um, they can, you know, while they're waiting for unemployment or for a, you know, a, a stimulus check that they could still get help. We funded about 25 different projects this past year. For 2021, we recognized that as a Jewish leaning organization, one area where we had to do a better job was in telling the stories and providing the platform for Jews of color. And we um, are putting together a fund that will um, support uh, the stories of black Jews and Latin Jews and Asian Jews um, and I'm going to start putting projects together for that in, uh, uh, and, and start providing some funds for that in the new year as well. So it seems like in 2022, I'll be seeing you at NAPTI because that sounds like a, um, you know, like a documentary or, or, you know, a movie, even putting that process together. And I'm sure you've gone to NAPTI before here in, you know, in South Florida and, and, and that just sounds Awesome. Um, and I'm glad that you said that because a lot of times when people say, oh, Jews, they only get one vision. And I've been to Ethiopia and I've talked to the different, you know, religious priests and I've, I've got the full complete books and said, let's talk about Operation Solomon and Operation Moses. And folks just, you know, they see it one thing, but Russian Jews would tell you, hold on. We're a little different than the Polish Jews or the, those American Jews and the Hasidic Jews. Let's not get started on that. <laughs> but Kellen, here's what's amazing to me. You know, people think about black Jews, black Hebrews, and they often think about Ethiopia. Uganda has a chief rabbi. There's a whole Jewish community in Uganda. There's Jewish communities throughout the continent. What there are 54 nations on the African continent. And I'd say at least seven or eight of them have Jewish populations of, of black Jews. And, uh, and I've all, I was always fascinated by that. There's Chinese Jews, there's Japanese Jews. So we just realized that in, as an organization, not enough people knew those stories. So we wanted to provide the platform and the resources for people from those communities to be able to tell their stories. Um, and with regard to NAPI, um, yes, I used to go when it was in New Orleans then uh, I've been to it in Florida. And I may, I, look, uh, circumstance willing, I wrote a movie, you know, Dolphin Tale was shot in Tampa. So I love, I love me some Pinellas County over there. Um, but I um, wrote a film that we are hopefully going to shoot in Sarasota um, towards the end of next year. So maybe I'll be out there and then you and I can hang out there. Have you come on set? Oh, man, definitely. And I'll show you, you know, my, my goal is when we relocate, my wife is from Cameroon, and I have friends there and they're like, Kellen, you want to be in a movie? And I'm like, you know what? 
I, I do if it makes sense. I don't feel like um, playing the game in Hollywood. And I don't know, you know, my face, my voice. I sound more like a cartoon character. So however, you know, you want to put that together. But I, I, I love that. And I would I would definitely that's like a challenge to me. And I like to bull ride when I'm able when we lived in Texas. I like those challenges. I like doing different things. And we talked about the snowboarding thing. So, you know, you hmm, go ahead. So let's talk about that for a moment. I just I want to I want to throw the flowers back your way, which is, you know, as I'm sure your your audience uh, knows or people will be hearing of this platform clubhouse, this audio social platform is really amazing. And and I have gone into a lot of rooms, um, you know, gone up on stage in terms of kind of the nomenclature of how this app works, connected with a lot of folks. But the thing I really want to, you know, give you praise on is your hustle. You know, you were diligent in your follow-up saying, Hey, it was nice to hear you on in that room. Here's my show. You sent me some links. I was able to check out what you were all about. And, and the thing that impressed me about you is, you know, look, this is what I said before. You don't need the fancy studio. You don't need all of the latest state of the art equipment to quote unquote, do it the right way. Cause you're out there just trying to figure it out. So it was my respect for that and seeing, you know, that you're putting in the work and really doing your thing that made it a no brainer for me to be like, yeah, man, I, I would love to come and be able to chat with you on the show. Um, and I think that's important. You know, I live in a town where you meet a lot of people who are talkers, a lot less of them are doers you always got to respect the people who do it because they're not trying to make it perfect. They'll get to perfect or they'll get to closer to perfect, but just getting it done is half the battle. So really much praise to you for, for your work on that, sir. Well, I, I thank you. And I've always won, you know, maybe I wasn't the best football player. Maybe I wasn't the best, whatever, but I want to put the work in and I will, my goal, even for our clients, let's outwork the clients. And they say, how do you do that? And how do you raise two kids and do that? But I had last week, a a, a holiday surprise for my wife um, that came, you know, last week. And the woman thought I was playing when I asked her to be on my, um, come to my house. And I said, why don't you come on my show? But because I have this automated text thing on my phone, she thought it was like a game or someone trying to do some multi-level marketing. So I'm like, just book some time. If you want to talk to me, it's my automatic text thing. And she told me, if not for my son being in the car, I would have not known who you are. I am a grain of sand. Like I think everyone is, but I'm a small grain of sand. And my thing is, this doesn't have to be the biggest thing, but it could be my thing to give the game. Somebody needs to hear your story and how you did it so they can knock off the excuses and say, wait, if I just put in the work and one thing begets another, and if I just keep pushing, we they always hear that, but folks really don't believe it, so they don't even try as hard. And if you try, like, some of the great poets, Eric Thomas, you know, like you're trying to breathe. You can get so much further. I come from Oconda. Do you know where that is? I don't know. Oconda is Oakland after you see Black Panther. And, okay. <laughs> and that's, and that's just, that's what it, I just said, if we can just try, we can go to the next level, next level, next level. And so that's what it's about. No doubt. Well, and two quick things in response to that. You know, I, I'm I'm probably a couple years older than you, but um, 
you know, when I was growing up, if you wanted to learn a new thing, you'd like, you know, you'd buy the time life books or something like that. And nowadays for these young kids, it's like YouTube university. There was a young man uh, from Peru who worked at my company, my last company. And, um, you know, he lived, he and his wife lived with his parents and his brother and his wife. So it was a multi-generational home and they had to redo the kitchen. So he got a bunch of bids and he's like, yeah, we don't, we don't have that kind of money. So he went on YouTube and he taught himself how to completely, you know, tear down the kitchen and completely rebuild it. Did the wiring, did all the new stove, the new tiling and everything else. So I'm just saying, you know, people who are resilient, people who are hustling, they can figure it out. One of the projects that we funded with my, with my nonprofit this past year was started by a woman in San Francisco. And she was in her 20s when both her parents died. And the one thing that she felt most, one of the things she felt saddest about was that as she got older and got married and had a kid and bought a house and did everything else, that she would not have the wisdom of her parents to be able to share that experience and learn from them. So she set out a goal of finding the dopest older adults across America that she could interview and just learn how they did it and how did they manage to survive and thrive in old age. So she had shot a couple videos, very low budget. And then she came to, uh, to us and she and I got on a call and I said, I think what you're doing is amazing. Let me help you kind of take it to the next level. So we branded it Silver Screen Studios. And then I said, let's produce some shows. And then when COVID started, we had to do it all over Zoom like you and I are doing now. But we ended up getting cold calling celebrities. Larry King, since you mentioned him, Carl Reiner, Tommy Chong, Norman Lear, Ellen Burstyn. We spoke to Carl Reiner three weeks before he died. We were the last interview that he gave. And it was such a great interview. And he was so open and forthcoming that Time Magazine wrote an article about our interview and Newsweek and the LA Times and the Detroit Free Press. We were on CNN, all these other places, just because, you know, this woman had an idea and I was in a position to help her. And we were able to take it to the next level. Now, season two, we've been filming. So we just, we spoke to Marla Gibbs. We spoke to John Amos. We're going to be speaking to Harry Belafonte, all of these different folks, you know, and really try and expand it, um, you know, to not only be older Jewish folks, but older black folks and older civil rights folks and whatever else. And, and uh, And we submitted that for an Emmy this past year. And we got into the final round of that. We didn't win anything, but, um, So all I'm saying is if you have an idea and you're passionate and you will not take no for an answer, the sky is the limit. And with that, you guys, you've been blessed with the game. Like, share, subscribe, wherever you hear it, wherever you watch it. Be blessed. Can't give you a game overload. Game over. Thanks for getting in the game and listening to the Diversify Game Podcast with Kellen, the number one show pairing entrepreneurship with diverse and inclusive perspectives like wine and cheese, bagel and locks, fish and grits. 
Be sure to visit DiversifyGame.com for all the good stuff. Join in the conversation and discover more content.